This episode is brought to you by the Marine Corps Association and Modern Day Marine. Exciting news, Scuttlebutt fans. Modern Day Marine, co-hosted by the Marine Corps Association and the Marine Corps League, is set to take place at the Walter E. Washington Convention Center from April 30th to May 2nd. Dive into the latest innovations, hear from senior leaders across the Department of Defense, and connect with fellow Marines and defense industry partners. Registration is now open. Visit marinemilitaryexpos.com for more details. That's marinemilitaryexpos.com. Don't miss this opportunity to engage in the emerging Marine Corps advancements. We would like to thank the Marine Corps Association and Modern Day Marine for sponsoring this episode. Hey, Scuttlebutt listeners. Thank you again for joining us. I, as always, am Vic. I'm here with Nancy. Hi, everyone. And uh, we're really excited uh, to have someone who I sort of uh, worked with, even though he probably doesn't realize it, but we were in the same, uh, shared the same blood in the same mud for a short period of time in 2003. And I'm looking at his face like, wow. we didn't, this is not part of the pre-show, so this is going to be cool to get the... Uh, the actual reactions uh, from it. But um, we are joined by retired television journalist Chip Reed, who recently published a book called Battle Scars that sort of chronicles his life as an embedded journalist during the um, 2003 invasion of Iraq and does uh, explores sort of the 20 plus years later of some of the Marines that he was with um, from 3-5 and, and what's going on with them. So Chip, Thank you so much for joining it us It is today. my pleasure to be here. Yeah, this is exciting. This yep. is really exciting. So um, what I was alluding to was, and I remember reading in your book that you were at Camp Matilda. That's right. That's where I no was. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. with Third Tracks. And then a buddy of mine, I actually texted him uh, as I was reading your book. I'm like, hey, do you know Chip Reed? And he um, said, he's like, the name sounds super familiar. I was like, yeah, he was with 3-5. He's like, oh, yeah, I was with 2-5. Uh, but I worked with 3-5, uh, you know, doing the workups and stuff. Yeah. And so anyways, and then just downstairs, Tim Mundy, who is the head of our uh, uh, foundation, is the brother of Sam Mundy. Sam Mundy, Mundy yes. rolled with. Who I couldn't have done this book without, by yeah, the way. Yeah, that's he, awesome. Uh, so. Well, uh, before we dive into your book, though, uh, Chip, could you just tell us a little bit about your, I mean, extremely fascinating life? As a, not only as a television journalist, but like, where are you from? I'm from Wilmington, Delaware, okay. and uh, grew up in your basic middle class household and went off to college and law school, and I was a lawyer for six years. Oh, nice. In, in Delaware? Yeah. No, in Washington, Ooh. and I got really, really tired of sitting at a desk. And so My wife I had just to left f- law. Yeah, so. well, I had to <laughs> yeah. find something else. Yeah. I just couldn't sit. And uh, I had become a, a news junkie. Uh, it being in Washington, and I thought, what about TV news? I watch a lot of TV news. It looks like a lot of fun. So I quit the law firm, and I got an entry-level job at a uh, at a at ABC News, actually, just filling in uh, as a an off-air producer. Uh, temporary, part-time, foot in the door. I was making about a third of what I had been making sure. as a lawyer, wow. but I didn't have I didn't have a wife or kids, so I didn't care. Yeah. And, and I absolutely loved it. From day one, I loved it. And I spent 33 years in the business. And uh, leaving the law, for me anyway, was the best decision I ever made. Other than marrying my wife, of course. Right. You know, got to of get course. that in yeah, there. Yeah, you, yeah. You've got to have that in there. So my, we, we didn't get married till we were 50. That was my first. Wow. And, uh, but I 33 years in journalism. And then when I uh, decided to, to retire, I wanted to write a book. And it took me a long time to figure out what it was. 
but you could ask me this, or I could just segue into it why I decided to write the book about about the Marines. Tell us why you decided yeah, to yeah, write yeah, that. Yeah, I think that's an excellent we'll, idea. Let's jump around. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I was. it was Thanksgiving 2021, and I was driving home to pick up my mother, and who, by the way, we lost to this world about three weeks ago. Oh, but my so God. At age 93, sorry. it was a blessing. She was in hospice. She wasn't yeah. living a life anymore. I'm so and, sorry for uh, your loss. Wherever she is now, she's she's doing she's doing much better, and yeah. she's with my father. So, but, anyway, so, but anyway, I was driving home to pick her up to go home for Thanksgiving dinner in outside of Philadelphia at my brother's house, and this pickup truck roars by me on I-95 doing about 90 miles an hour, you know, one of those big tire things that makes all the noise, and, and it had temporary <laughs> plates and two Marine Corps stickers on it, and I, I thought to myself, isn't that just like a Marine? He just bought the damn thing, and he's already plastering it with Marine <laughs> Corps stickers. The yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, and it got me thinking about what was the most incredible story that I covered in 33 years, which was being embedded with 3-5 for six weeks as they crossed the border uh, into Iraq and all the way to Baghdad and a little bit after that. And uh, and there were about two weeks preparing in northern Kuwait, so I got to see them doing all the mm -hmm. incredible things they do. It was easily the most eye-popping, jaw-dropping story I covered in 33 years as a journalist. I mean, I've interviewed numerous presidents and world leaders and all that. All that stuff is like footnote material yeah. compared to being embedded with these guys. I came to admire them so much. I don't have a military bone in my body. The introduction or the first chapter, I forget, in the book is called Mr. Magoo Goes to yes. War. I love that chapter. Yeah, yeah. and it's Title's my great. wife, was trying, who was then my girlfriend, was trying to talk me out of going uh, to do something that I felt I had to do, wanted to do, couldn't wait to do. And uh, she, we were walking along the beach, and she was crying. And uh, she finally turned to me and said, you can't do this. It's like Mr. Magoo goes to war. You're 48 years old. You have arthritis in your knees and your back. You've never even been in a fist fight, much less a war. And so Mr. Magoo goes to war became the title of that chapter. I thought about making it the title of the book, but I thought that was too flippant for yeah, a book that yeah. is a very serious book about about the sacrifices uh, that Marines make and all people in uniform make, especially the ones, I believe, who are right. on the front lines in combat. But everybody, all of you do, you know, they all make great sacrifices to do what they do, and they don't get enough attention for it. So my goal was to tell as many of their stories as I could. Well, I mean, going with 3-5, I mean, that's like jumping in. The yeah, I mean, yeah. You're talking about one of the most storied battalions, exactly. one of the most storied regiments in all of I was very U.S. Lucky. American history. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, Guadalcanal and Peleliu and all that. And in fact, my wife's father fought at uh, Guadalcanal and Peleliu and was highly decorated. Yeah. And, I, mean, and I, I would, I would love to know yeah. if he was in 3-5. I have not been able to figure that out yet, but... but uh, uh, yeah, they. Uh, it, it was. It was. It was such a pleasure, and s I was so lucky. I mean, you guys had to go through boot camp. You had to go through so much to get there, to be on the front lines of battle. All I had to do was raise my hand when they said, who wants to do this? Yeah. And I was in. So what was that process like? Um, oh, I guess before we jump too far into your experiences at Embedded Journalist, yeah. could you 
sort of talk to our listeners about what an embedded journalist is? It, this was really a, a, a pretty new idea. Yeah. There, there were plenty of journalists in Vietnam, for example. Yeah, I mean, right. But it was very informal. Yeah, yeah. It was very informal. I remember one of, the, one of the guys I worked with, Bill Plant, who was in Vietnam, uh, and I worked with him at CBS, and he said it was just – you know, a helicopter would be going, a bunch of helicopters would be going off on a mission. They'd say, anybody want to go? And the, the journalist sitting around, sure, I'll go, sure, I'll go. So it was very informal, but uh, this was very formally set up and you embedded with a particular unit. Uh, and it usually wasn't for a real long time. It was usually a month to two months. Mine was about six weeks. And it was set up by the Pentagon. They I actually did a podcast recently with Tori Clark, who was the official at the Pentagon, uh, who put it all together, uh, or was the main person. There were there were over 500 of us journalists embedded with U.S. forces mm-hmm. in Iraq uh, as the war began. Um, a lot of them were were not on air. A lot of them were technical people and such. But it was it was a the goal was they believed that if the American people could see what their her heroes were doing in the war, then they would support it. And I'm not sure that it had that effect. I think it did in the beginning. Um, but but I think it's crucially important that we know what's going on, uh, not only for the general public, but for the families. I mean, I always, when I was reporting, I always, I did a lot of live reporting because I was at NBC at the time. So I was doing live shots on MSNBC um, you know, every hour mm-hmm. sometimes when I could. And I had a satellite phone, so it wasn't always on camera. But it was, it was uh, I thought, so important for the families to know what their people were doing. Uh, whenever I came on, they, they had their TVs uh, trained to NBC or MSNBC all the time, the families of these guys. And as soon as I came on, they had a phone tree set up mm-hmm. where five people would call five people who would call, you know, and it would just spread like wildfire, and it would be chips on, hang up, chips on, hang up, chips on, hang up. And it wasn't because they thought anything great about me, but they were going to be able to find out something about their guys. Right, right. And I say guys because they were all guys then. Right, it was, right. uh, but it was, it was uh, and, and when I came home, I went to their, uh, I don't want to jump too far ahead here, that but was... I, I went to their uh, homecoming. Uh, in September of 2003 at Camp Pendleton, and they they presented me with a big fat book full of thank you notes to me and my crew oh, for, cool. for putting that's ourselves so cool. on the line in order to let yeah. them know what they had been doing. And that's why when writing this book, they tr- these guys trusted me right from the start because their families trusted me because I, I did just straight you reporting. You were their lifeline. I was yeah. their lifeline, and I was, you know, some people kind of sensationalized and did that. I just, just the facts. And well, and that, I think that brings up an interesting point about the the idea of embedded journalists, which I, I think is really genius, especially in hindsight. But like, kind of like you were saying, when combat correspondence was in its sort of infancy, uh, we had just recently done a movie review of, of a documentary the, with the Marines at Tarawa. But these were uniformed... Wow. Right, active duty s- Marines who people, were right. combat correspondents. Right, or you had... Uh, and then it's also like when you think of like um, Full Metal Jacket, right? Yeah. Like you had Joker, yeah, uh, who was a Marine. Yeah, but he even those guys 
we're kind of in a green zone. And then, like you said, hey, we've got a bird going out for this thing yeah. who wants on. There's no relationship. There's no context. There's just show up, report it, and then come home. I think with the embedded model, really sort of a paradigm shift was you don't knew these guys pretty intimately like you talk about in the book like you were wearing the mop suit they had to give you gas mask training you were eating mres that's right there are a couple times where marines were pulling you out of potential out of danger yes even though they were ordered not to but they did of course (laughs) they get that old guy chip out of the way (laughs) And, and, and and i also loved that idea that um they embraced you as quickly as they They, did yeah it took a little while took a little while I'll tell you one quick story. Sure, I did a, there was there was a in the early on um, there was a horrible incident that's described in detail in the book, and some of the guys lived were tortured by what happened here for twenty years and still are, uh, where two little Iraqi girls were killed on a night that was so dark you couldn't see anything. Mm-hmm. They were getting messages that Iraqi troops were approaching. Somebody fired. Everybody fired. That next morning they went out and. Uh, uh, and they found these two young girls uh, who had been killed. And uh, we found the five Marines who were in that area and probably were the ones who fired those shots, And my producer and I. And we asked them if they wanted to talk about it on camera. And they all said, absolutely, because we want the American people to know. We want our families to know. And we want anybody, everybody to know that this was an accident. We believe they were being used as human shields. It was a horrible thing. And we are. they were just completely devastated by this mm-hmm. and they wanted people to know that and so uh, after I interviewed them or before I interviewed them I went to Sam Mundy the Colonel Lieutenant Colonel Mundy who's now who now is a re- retired Lieutenant General and I said this is what I plan to do and he said well let me run that up the ch- chain of command first before you do it he said I'm not saying don't do it and he came back very quickly. He probably either went to Joe Dunford, who later became, of course, Commandant and uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and above him was Jim Mattis. So, you know, two of the most extraordinary Marines of all time were above Sam Mundy. I called it like the 1927 Yankees. You know, (laughs) Mundy, Mundy, Dunford, and Mattis, just incredible. And he he came right back very quickly, and he said, you're here, so long as you're not giving away our... Uh, where we're going, yeah. Um, or, or the other big rule was, so long as you're not reporting uh, the name of anybody who gets killed in combat yeah. before their family is notified. Those were the two basic rules: yeah. don't give away their battle plan and don't. Well, have there was a very, there was a famous uh, journalist who got in a lot of trouble. Her- for that. Her- Geraldo Rivera <laughs> yeah. did. He he diagrammed where his people were <laughs> yeah. going, and uh, uh, somebody was telling me recently, though. As horrendous as that may sound, the Marines he was with loved him, so they didn't want him to be punished for this. Sure, so, sure. so they just told him, "Don't do it again, you fool." So, but anyway, I so I went, I interviewed these guys, <laughs> and then I remember I was doing a live shot on using some of the bites from the interviews, and two Marines. That, that, it was hard because I'm I'm re- doing reporting on stuff that is terrible that happened. Uh, as a result of this war and these Marines making. Uh, doing something that was probably unavoidable but was still horrible. And afterward, two of them came up to me and said, I thought you were on our side. Mm-hmm. And so I sat down with them, with my producer, and explained that, that I, I'm not on a side. I'm here to report what I see and I hear. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Of course, in my heart, I am on your side. But as a journalist, my job is just to tell the facts. It's And these same two guys, after a few more weeks, came up to me and said, you know, we really understand what you're doing now. You know, my families, our families love your reporting and what you're doing. And we understand you've got to tell the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah, and yeah. that's your role. It's not here to be a cheerleader for us. Right. Although that was hard not to do. I will tell you, it was one of the hardest things I ever had to do was not be a cheerleader for these guys because I came to admire them so much and 18 year old kids who were making life and death decisions like that and when I was 18 as I like to say my biggest uh, conundrum was whether to invite my good friend Willa Fisher or her smoking hot little sister Wanda to the high school prom you know and these guys are they're putting their lives on the line so how did you do it how did you keep from being a cheerleader um I just just tell the facts the same way I did um uh, as as a lawyer and as a journalist, you just tell the facts. You just, you don't you don't uh, insert your own opinions, and you don't you just you know. I think people could probably tell that I was bonding with these guys to some degree. But when something went wrong, I reported it. And uh, you know, as soon as it was clear to us, to me, that there were no weapons of mass destruction along this route to Baghdad, uh, I reported it. And nobody questioned it because uh, it became clear pretty quickly there were none. And some of these guys started to question why they were there. Not most. Most of them were, you know, were the attitude, and there's a chapter on this, how they feel about the war 20 years later. Uh, Most of them were, I'm not here to make political decisions. I'm here to to answer the nation's call, and that's what they did. But there there were several who who have some real problems with what we did in Iraq, with going there in the first place. So so what was... um, I guess if we rewind a little bit. So when news was coming down, you said it was like Thanksgiving-ish when they were soliciting for volunteers who wanted to... No, it was, it was no Thanksgiving was oh, when, so when I was going home and I didn't finish that story, oh, which yeah. I often do. I go off on tangents, but the they, this pickup truck roared by me and I started oh, yeah, thinking okay. about, yeah, yeah. started thinking about uh, the most extraordinary experience. And after I had been just, just, Going through, gone through a grueling couple of, couple of months to begin my retirement. What am I going to write this book about? I don't want to write it about politics. Who wants to talk about politics anymore? Not me. Not me. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, and 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 that was my my eureka moment when the that truck went by, and I thought, that's it. I will write it about the Marines I was embedded with, and that was 2021. Yeah. And I, I I've got to get the book out by 2023, the for the 20th anniversary of the invasion, and that's what I did. And it was a it was a labor of love. I just and absolutely. You had been loved. in touch with a lot of. Them I had been in touch with yeah. some of them, and That's Sam cute. Mundy was one of the main ones. And I called him immediately, and he he uh, he said, "I like the idea that you're doing this," which was a real a relief for me because he, he trusted me, and and uh, uh, and I don't think he had any reason not to. He knew I would do it just a facts just the facts approach, and I interviewed forty two of these guys for the book uh, forty. Uh, Marines and two Navy corpsmen and several of their wives and grown children because I wanted to get that perspective sure. too. Uh, and it was uh, an incredible experience. And Sam Mundy is the guy who said, uh, you know, he said, Chip, you're going to come across, you know, a fair amount of PTSD here probably. Mm-hmm. And, I, and he said, but don't forget the other side of the coin, PTG, post-traumatic growth. Most of these guys didn't even know what the, they had never heard that expression. Um, and let me read, look at the book. Got to put my glasses on to look at the book real quickly. But basically, post-traumatic growth is you go through PTSD or PTSD. A lot of people don't like 
that D on the end of it, so which whatever it is. And there's this theory that was developed way back in the 90s, but not many people know it by name. And he said, as they can, I'm reading from, from the book about the two guys, Richard Tedeschi and Lawrence Calhoun, who came up with this whole concept, said, as they consulted with trauma survivors, they were struck by how many had experienced posi positive changes, such as a renewed appreciation for life, a newfound sense of purpose, greater inner strength, enhanced spirituality, stronger relationships with others, and a newfound desire to help other people. And so as I was interviewing these guys, and quite a few of them had experienced PTS or PTSD, whatever you want to call it, and when I explained, uh, I, when I asked them, did you ever, ex have you experienced post-traumatic growth? And nine times out of ten, they'd say, what's that? And I would read what it was, and they would say, yes, absolutely that happened to me. But it didn't happen until I sought help or started talking about it with my fellow Marines or and with my family. And, and when I stopped trying to bury it, that's when yeah. it, that's when I started to come out of it. And it's a long you know, I think of it as a long, dark tunnel with a light at sure. the other end, and the light at the other end is post-traumatic growth. Well, and almost all the guys I interviewed experienced some form of post-traumatic growth. And I love the fact that you included that in the book, that I, I think it's it would be very easy to latch on to the doom and gloom. Right. And, the, um, and there is some doom and gloom in here. PTSD is hell. A hundred percent. But there's that other but there, side. But there's... there's it's a multifaceted story. Yeah, absolutely. And I like the fact that you touched on a lot of different facets. Yeah. It's, it's not so yeah. simple. Well, thank you. But I, I really did not want this just to be a downer of a book, and it is not. It is an inspirational well, book. Well, I also love that you have sections for each of yeah. the Marines. Yeah. I mean, that rather than just sort of speaking about them yeah. in these like, And I quote them terms. extensively, right, yeah. verbatim. Well, it's, it's almost like a historical And I even used too. their language, which yes. means the word F-U-C-K appears. What word is that again? Uh, <laughs> fuck, or <laughs> fucking, or <laughs> fuck me, or... <laughs> Whatever, yeah. at least uh, every variation, at least every of, variation mm -hmm. of it mm -hmm. appears in here. Like the noun, uh, the verb, uh, the adjective, everything, yeah. everything, and it's uh, and a lot of other little you know ornamentations, shit, and whatever else. But it's that's how they talk. It's I'm not going to censor them. It's real. I tried yeah. to be as real as I could. Well, and the other thing that really struck me as I was reading the book is that it's not your story. You're the you set you set it up by explaining why you're there and why you know these Marines. But what you did is you served as a conduit That's right. for them. For their and stories. you told their stories, which to me is one of the most beautiful things about this book. At its heart, it's a story about Marines and you let them tell their stories. Yeah, no, that was my goal. Um I had an agent early on who wanted me to do it very differently, just interview like three or four guys and and you know, make it more about me telling their stories. And I just, no, I want to tell as many of these guys' stories as I can. And the inspiration for that is, well, just natural, but also, let me read one other thing. Please do. It's um, it, 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 at the very beginning of the book, before I even get to the table of contents, I have one page called In Memory of the Fallen. And it says, in the Memorial Garden at Marine Corps Base Camp Pendleton in Southern California is a plaque that begins with these words. They say that a man dies twice. I get chills now, still reading this. They say that a man dies twice. First, when he leaves his body, and second, when his name is spoken for the last time. Then I go through who we lost on the way to, to Baghdad. And I say, <laughs> um, sorry, I get... Uh, 
It is my hope that their names, the names of these five, will never be spoken for the last time. And that is my goal, to tell as many stories as I could tell and to encourage other journalists and other people to tell the stories of people who go to war. It's especially important in a war like this that became unpopular because so many of these guys just felt unappreciated. Well, it was generational. And yeah. I guess as, as we were talking about post-traumatic stress, you know, the things that the Marines experienced in 03, I mean, for many was just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, um, that's right. You know, I, I also was there for the invasion uh, and I went, and did recruiting duty for a few years. So I was seeing all of this kind of stuff as we're also trying to, you know, get young Americans yeah. to continue to join the effort. I come back three years later and, you know, there were Lance corporals who were on their third and fourth deployments yeah. at this point. Wow. Um, so it was, it was generational and now we're out of it. Um, so it'd be very easy to just sort of, I don't know, pat ourselves on the back or even forget yeah. about all these things. But you know, so forget. it's really great. And I, I, I love this sort of call to action for other journalists. Yeah. And I also thought this came, I, I hoped that this would be strong coming from a person who doesn't have his, a military bone in his body like mm -hmm. me. You know, when I was 73, when I was 73, when I was 18 was 1973. And the last thing I wanted to do was, it right. was go to Vietnam as the war was winding down. Right. And I thought I'd be getting, putting my life in, on the line for, for no reason at that point. But these guys, they all, you all, put your lives on the line. And uh, uh, I thought that would be, it would be, you know, certainly lots of military people write books about their experiences and sure. such, but I thought it might have a little special impact that somebody who has so little in common with them, you know, I mean, yeah. the idea of me going onto a battlefield at 18 was laughable. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, so that's why I came to admire these guys so much while I was there, and even more after I talked to them 20 years later, 19 years later. So how, how do you think that time spent embedded with 3-5 changed you? Um, it certainly changed my view of the military and of, uh, I mean, I didn't have a bad view. I have done dozens of stories on PTSD as a correspondent for NBC News and CBS News, where I spent 25 years between the two, dozens of stories on PTSD. It's always been something, and I kicked myself for not having ever come across this concept of post-traumatic growth. But it made me certainly more respectful of what they do. Uh, it made me realize uh that uh, that I, I really missed something by not being in the military. Oh, interesting. Yeah, interesting. and uh, I, I mean... The camaraderie? The, the camaraderie, the training, the skills you learn, the way it brings out the best in you, uh, the way, you know, you get torn down and build up again. Um, I, I'm not saying I'm, you know, well, I'm 68 years old. I'm not going to join the Marines next week. But, uh, <laughs> Are but you sure? Cause... Maybe. Okay. okay. Maybe. Yeah. You think well, they'd well, let I, me? I, I, I know some people. Yeah, you know some people. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm 68, and I, I'm, I'm a fairly youthful 68-year-old, but I just had an MRI, and if you could see the MRI of my back, you would think I was 93. So. It's like a Doppler radar. Yeah, yeah, yeah oh, oh, it's unbelievable. So. So I think a surgery is in my near future, I oh, believe. Gosh, so, yeah, yeah, yuck. So, well, I guess it, along, but it, let oh, me say yeah, this: yeah, it please, didn't yeah. uh, change me dramatically, and I did not come home with PTSD symptoms, and uh, or at least none that were, you know, really 
difficult to deal with. I certainly had some nightmares. Uh, but there are three reasons, I believe, that I did not come home suffering the way many of these guys did. Number one, I was 48. I had some life experience. Right. Next, uh, more important than that is I was not killing other human beings. And that is something Marines are trained to do. And they do it without hesitating. And they do it without emotion at the time. Right. But that can have some repercussions later on, as many of the Marines Certainly. who I interviewed told me. And most important is I wasn't losing people who were brothers. Mm -hmm. and, and when they say Marines are like brothers, they're more than brothers because every one of them would jump in front of a bullet to protect their fellow Marines, the guy on the left and the guy on the right, as they say. How many, do you th how many brothers in this world would do that to protect their birth brothers? I don't know. I don't know. I think I've a lot would. I've got one brother I would do that for. <laughs> <laughs> but these guys, it's, it's, a, it's a closer bond than just being growing up in the same family. It is intense. The, the, and especially when you're in combat and when you lose somebody. Mm -hmm. And the number of these guys who experience PTSD, who their main symptom was survivor's guilt, was it's really an enormous percentage because so many of them completely irrationally have spent 20 years tortured over whether something they could have done could have saved one of their brothers in arms. Yeah. Even though it makes no sense at all that no, an Iraqi shot him. You were 20 feet away. There's nothing you could do. You were facing the other direction. You have to understand this wasn't your fault. And a lot of time it takes them finding a good therapist or really talking about it with their fellow Marines and their families to get past that. But, but, that, but those are the three reasons, I believe, because I didn't face killing other human beings. I was 48 years old, and I didn't lose these brothers, people who were even closer than brothers, like they did. Yeah, and I, and I think you bring up a good point. It's that sense of community that is critical to the healing process. That's right. Um, because for many, you can sort of, especially when you're doing multiple deployments almost on top of each other, Yeah, you're so focused on mission accomplishment that it's really easy to just take That's all right. that stuff and just shove it down That's deep right. inside. And then all of a sudden you get your DD-214 and it's all gone. Yeah. Um, and then that's when all that stuff starts to resurface and you've got nothing else really to fall back on. And, yeah. And so I think it is, it, it is a sense of, you know, one thing about, I guess, um, that, that familial brotherhood is, is that even when things really go pear-shaped, you just sort of rely on the fact that, well, that's my brother. Yeah. <laughs> There's always an opportunity yeah, to reconcile. Right, right, right. Um, but when you have this um, brotherhood that's forged in steel and then it just goes away, like where, how you, where are you going to go? It's, it's um, so to, hard. To... It's so hard. And, and you know, quite a few uh, of the three, five Marines I was embedded with have taken their own lives mm -hmm. since then. Um, a couple of them in very recent years. And... The repercussions of that uh, on the other Marines are, sure. are just, just devastating. It's almost it's almost worse than if they had been lost. In that's the that's right. That's right. And because and then you've got all these guys. What should I have done? What could I have done to keep that from happening? And, and it's, they start looking back at old texts. It's, it's, like yep, God, I, why yep. didn't I respond to that yep, text? Yep, why didn't yep. I hit him up on Facebook? Yep. We, no, it, it's yeah. it's and these are the sacrifices that are inevitable. They they are going to happen. 
uh, and that's one reason we have to honor the people who who did this, Absolutely. put their lives on the line, uh, and forged these bonds made of steel, and realized, uh, maybe didn't realize at the time, how, what it was going to do to them later. Yeah, and then, you know, the, the, the juxtaposition between the 03 invasion and then those folks that went back in 04 and 05 yeah. it was not the same war. That's right. Oh, yeah. That's right. I mean, we lost five on, on the way, and that was horrible. Mm -hmm. And there was the amount of devastation, emotional, mental devastation was incredible. But a lot of these guys went back yep. to where in Fallujah uh, mm -hmm. the next year with 3-5. Uh, some of them even uh, had to, some of them were due to, be, to leave, and they said, oh, no, I'm not yeah. letting my buddies go to Fallujah the way this thing's going now yep. and uh, not have me there. So uh, that was, who boy, the... Uh, consequences of that but I just want to say one thing here we're yep. dwelling on you know the difficulties and the sacrifices and all but I also want to just make clear that this book is also about what they learned as Marines and the the camaraderie and how it changed their lives for the better and how tr uh, the discipline and the leadership skills and the ability to get something done even when you are first given the assignment, you go, how the hell am I going to get this done? Oh, I'm a Marine. Yeah. I will find a way. Yeah, yeah. And there are so many benefits to being a Marine uh, that they, in my opinion, and, and in their opinion, because every single one of the guys I interviewed said something like what I said earlier, other than marrying my wife, it was the best decision uh, I ever made was... Uh, was uh, joining the marines i mean i'm sure you know how that you have you know that feeling it's just something that changes your life for the better and you couldn't can't imagine what your life might have been like yeah. if you hadn't joined the marines no, that's very true um if I, you wouldn't mind rewinding a little bit i wonder what was i'm really interested in the idea of uh sort of this open call for journalists to embed yeah um what were some of your thoughts when you first heard that this was like? Well, actually, I should back up on the yeah, story a little bit. Sure. Here, here's I'll give you a short version. I'll try not to go too long on it. But when Afghanistan, when the war in Afghanistan yeah, happened, in I was 01, I was right? based yeah. in L.A. That's right. And and uh, they immediately said, "Yeah, there's nothing for you to cover in Los Angeles. You need to come to New York immediately." So planes, trains, and automobiles took me four days to get to New York City. Wow. I covered Ground Zero for two weeks. Okay. Uh, I then covered the Pentagon for a week, and they then sent me to Egypt to be the listening post for the Arab world. So I was reporting on what the Arab how the Arab world was responding to all this. And then they decided, well, that's not a good use of your of your abilities, so we're, we'd like you to go to Afghanistan, where the, the war is about to begin, uh, because the troops were, yep. the Marines and soldiers were flooding in there. And, uh, and I said, and I had never been, I had never done anything like that. So I said, wow, can I think about it overnight and call you in the morning? They said, sure. So uh, I called my wife and talked to her, my then girlfriend and talked to her about it. And she said, if, if you think you need to do this, then go do it. And I did. I said, I do feel I need to do this. I'm a journalist. And one of the things I love about being a journalist is you don't run from a fire. You run toward the fire. You don't run from a scene of a murder. You run toward the scene of a murder. You, you don't run from a tornado or an earthquake. You run or 
hurricane, you run toward it. And that's the same with war. You run toward it. And that's one thing I love about journalism. And I said, I've got to do this. So I called the next morning and said, uh, I want to do this. And they said, sorry, too late. Oh. Somebody, somebody took the slot before you, the last slot. And so I was determined as soon as it became clear that the war in Iraq was going to happen, I uh, started, uh, I don't think we had email back then, but whatever we had, I started messaging um, we had something at NBC where I was then called iMail, which right. they thought was going to be the big thing. So, <laughs> so anyway, somebody lost their shirt on that, I'm sure. But, <laughs> but um, so I started messaging the big bosses in New York right away, saying, you know, if and when this becomes a war in Iraq, I, I want to be, uh, I want to go, and I want to be as close to the front lines as I can get, and be careful of what you wish for because yeah. I sure got it. And, yeah, yeah. And I loved it, absolutely loved it. And they did give us a couple a week in the mountains of Virginia doing training with some, I hate this, but with retired British Royal Marines. <laughs> Why don't Marines, they probably have by now created a company to train us, but these, and it was weird training in in thick woods for a desert what? environment, but still, they taught us a lot about first aid, and I'm sorry I keep hitting this microphone, I'm moving my hands around too much, but they taught us about first aid and lots of other things and how to detect landmines and all sorts of things they taught us. And then they sent us earlier to Iraq than we thought we were going to go, and we thought it was because the war was going to start sooner, but it wasn't. It was because uh, Madison Company had decided that we needed more training. Yeah. So... Uh, Madison Dunford, I'm sure we're big players in that, and the Pentagon generally, Rumsfeld. And so we went over there, and it was mostly first aid, and it was mostly what do you do if there really are chemical weapons and biological weapons, and so they were telling us about all the shots we need to give ourselves yep. on the battlefield and give each other and all this. So it was it – was, uh, it was uh, – Intense? It was intense, uh, but, you know, I – Rolled with the punches. I, I really did. I couldn't wait to go. I just could not wait to cross that border. And and that was one of the most memorable moments of my life, going across that border. It was a gigantic traffic jam of yes, Amtrak's going, going up, up there. And then finally, when they all got single file into a lane, we just started roaring across that desert. Yeah, it was uh, Um Kassar was that village. Yeah, that that's right. right. There at the yeah. yeah, it was incredible. It just, uh, it was one of the most exhilarating moments of my life. Mm -hmm. And the Marines certainly felt that way too. Although I, I was amazed at how many of these guys, you know, after we crossed, uh, went to sleep because that's what they're taught. You, you, you know, when you have a chance to sleep, get some sleep because you yeah. need the sleep. And I didn't know any better. So I stood up on the, we had the, the lid open on the Amtrak and I stood on a bench for probably two hours and just watched the whole, the, the, the 4th of July fireworks off in the distance of, of the artillery clearing the path for us. It was, it was in, uh, unbelievable. Yeah. Same thing. We were in our assault position. And then I remember seeing, I mean, when they talk about like, uh, you know, like the 300, like, oh, the, well, if the, our arrows will blot out the sun. Well, I guess we'll fight in the shade. Right. It was similar to that when yeah. you could see all of the Tomahawks. Shock and all. Shock and all, baby. Overhead. I mean, <laughs> this is, you know, before the AI autonomous drone stuff. But yeah. I mean, all those Tomahawks are just flying over like. I guess this is it. Like we're going. Yeah, wow. yeah. I remember. I remember saying I was talking to Tom Brokaw. You know, I, as soon as we crossed the border, I picked up the phone and described the satellite phone and described the scene, and uh, described it as like the Fourth of July and and everything. And and as I 
was about to hang up the phone and my live shot was over, Tom Brokaw said, well, as you heard, the ground war has begun. And I thought, <laughs> wow, I got to tell millions of people that the ground war has begun. Uh, and it was, uh, it, I, I just can't, yeah. this experience was just mind-blowing for me. You know, Marines had been training for this for years and all I had to do was volunteer to go. And there so, you were. And there I was. Wow. What, um... How's the book been received? It's been about? received. Uh, the audience I was most worried about was the Marines, the guys who I, the 42 guys I interviewed, the 40 Marines and two Navy corpsmen and their families. And it's been, I haven't heard from all of them, but from every single one I've heard from, uh, it's been extremely positive. Yeah. And, I, and I, that, boy, did I breathe a sigh of relief yeah. when I started getting those because uh, I wanted to make sure that nobody said, well, you didn't really interpret this exactly as I said it, and I have not heard anything like that. And that's why it was so important for me to quote them extensively, mm -hmm. to make sure I didn't you know, misinterpret something. Right, right. And how did they respond when you first contacted them 20 years later? Um, I, I would say the vast majority of the ones I got in touch with, and the way it worked was Monday gave me a bunch of names, but those were of more senior officers, guys who had been captains uh, and, and such, uh, captains and first lieutenants, and then they recommended four or five or six guys, and then they would recommend some guys. And I kept telling them, I want to get down to the, the guys who are privates and lance corporals uh, right. and and. And that's where I really want to get, and I did, and it took me a while to get, get to that point. Uh, had to work my way down. Um, uh, but it was, uh, I would say the vast majority of the ones I got in touch with said, I, I want to talk. Well, they had to call me. So I wasn't look, picking up the phone and call, cold calling people. Right. I would get I the see. names. Well, then I would, once I got some of the names. But a lot of the guys were, were contacting me. Uh, because, well, you know, Sergeant such and such said that you're doing this Got and I, I'd like to be part of it if I can. Or, or Lieutenant such and such said, uh, contacted the guys in his in his group of people in his squad or whatever. And and we would I can't remember, you know, squad. So a lieutenant team over squad, team squad, whatever, whatever company. group of people. Yeah, yeah. And so they would contact a bunch of their guys and they would call me. There were very few who I cold called. Uh, or just, you know, heard from somebody and said, Leo, let me give him a call. And those were people who had extraordinary stories that other people had told me about and hadn't called me and hadn't I contacted see. me. But I would say the vast majority of people I talked to wanted to do it, but there were quite a few who said, uh, uh, I'm just not ready to talk about this yet. It was 19 years later, and they weren't ready to talk about it yet. And, and so I don't think I have a real cross-section. I have... I probably have more guys who had dealt with their difficulties and the guy, some of the guys who hadn't dealt with it and weren't ready to talk about it didn't talk yeah, to me. Yeah. So it, this book might lean heavily in the favor of the people who saw a therapist, talked about it, dealt with it. And I don't want to make it sound like everybody did. Uh, not everybody, certainly not everybody. But I would say a solid, a solid 50% uh, had really struggled when they came home. And they tended to be the younger ones. They tended to be the ones on the front lines who were killing other human beings and watching their friends die uh, on the front lines. Um, the, uh, the, the guys who had been around a while, had more life experience, were farther back in the convoy. There was, there was not as much of that, but there was some there too. There was, I mean, it, 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 along this convoy, you could be attacked in an ambush oh, yeah. at any time uh, uh, of day or night. Yeah, so. we were strung out. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we were bypassing yeah. company-sized elements. Yeah. Just like, and we couldn't, 
we didn't have the resources because we were moving so fast to like actually process yeah. um, EPWs. Yeah, that's right. And so it's just like here, here's a humanitarian rations. You just start walking that yeah. way, man. Somebody will pick you up. Yeah, and like, Mattis's go. Mattis's uh, uh, you know order right at the beginning was speed. Speed, mm-hmm. speed, speed. Yes, and so what happened was the f- front units got way out there, and it stretched out sometimes to two and a half to three miles for yep. this battalion of, of uh, 1,100 guys. And, uh, and so they started attacking in the middle mm-hmm. sometimes because they knew, you know, yeah. if you hit the log train, then you're going to make it very difficult for the guys up front to keep moving fast. Yeah. So. But, uh, oh my God, I, I feel like I'm back there right now. I yeah, really do. But when we had to separate, when we got to Baghdad, and um, the day after we got there, uh, NBC said, we need you to go to the Palestine Hotel now because we yeah. need you to be available 24-7. I said, okay, I'll be available 24-7, but I won't be able to see what these guys are doing. And they said, well, it's more important to us to have you there so you can be on camera 24-7. And part of the reason for that was we lost David Bloom, who was mm-hmm. our covering the Army for us. He uh, died of a deep vein thrombosis that went to his head. I tell you what, it's really interesting. I don't know if this is true, but it's what a lot of people have hypothesized, that in the Army they tend to sleep in their vehicles. And I saw a picture of him sleeping with his knees practically up around mm. his ears. And in the Marines, you get out, of course, and you dig a ditch or a grave, whatever you want to call it, and you sleep in that. And so you're stretched out. You're not causing yourself to have a deep vein thrombosis. I don't know if that's why it, why it happened, but I know there have been a lot of uh, medical people and others who have hypothesized. And uh, uh, he's, a good ma- he's a good friend of mine. And it was, uh, in fact, right before we left, uh, he said, race you to Baghdad. He's a very competitive, very competitive guy. And I said, you're on. And that's not the way I wanted to win that race. Yeah. Certainly yeah. not. No. Well, I was also really interested that you chose to share the stories of the families because yeah. I think that is frequently overlooked. Absolutely. What made you decide to do that? Um well, initially, it was actually the the agent I had in the beginning who had a very different view of the book, uh, and she said, you know, um, she was looking at it just from the point of view of selling books. She said, you're going to do a lot better selling books if you interview, if you interview uh, wives of these guys. And I, so I thought, and but then I thought, I realized after talking to the first few guys that their families suffered mm-hmm. in many cases as much as they did. You know, I, I mean, they had to deal as one as one of them said, Shit's, shit slides downhill and PTSD slides downhill. Um, if your husband comes home from war with PTSD, you're probably going to have something similar to that yourself in dealing with him. So a lot of these uh, these wives and again, it was all wives. There were no uh, husbands because there were no women in frontline battalions at the time. Right. Uh, a lot of their, their, their point of view was just incredible uh it was not only their response during the war but more importantly how important they were to these marines after they came home and started struggling or not struggling um but they they were their support system uh and many of these guys were uh, you know by the time i interviewed them were on their second or third wife uh, which often had to do with their experience as one of the wives said to me, I sent my husband off to, off to war, and a different person came home. 
So it, it, there, was, there was a lot of that in there and a lot of dealing with something they never expected. And there was so little help for them in the first few years. Sure. Right. You know, it's, they, they should have been briefed about this stuff, about PTSD and survivor's guilt and such. And it took a few years. Once the VA got going on it and the Pentagon too, they started really dealing with this, with mental health much more uh, effectively. But in the beginning... Uh, it was, oh, yeah, you got PTSD. Here's a bag of drugs for you. Well, I mean, it, even even something as simple as out-processing. So I remember when I left out um, from Iraq in 03 to come home, there was, noth- there was no transition. None. It was just you went back down to Kuwait and you waited for your – basically your number to come right. up, uh, you know, if yeah. you manifested for whatever flight. Um, when I came – Back from Iraq in 08, we had, I mean, a full five-day package where we were back in the main um, logistics support area. Yeah. We were getting chaplains. We were getting the Oscars. We were getting everybody talking to us about all these things that you're going to experience. Here's all the all your resources and people you could talk to. You need to talk to each other. I mean, it was so much more comprehensive than, thank you. Thank God you're alive, but here's your number. You're going home yeah. now, and then you get home, and then yeah, walk it as one put it. It's like you're walking around on Mars, and you have no idea where you're going yeah. or what you're doing. Yeah, it was so. Uh, so yeah, we got smart. Unfortunately, a little late yeah. in the game, but yeah. at least we at least we made. They the did shift. because I tell you, it made a huge difference for mm-hmm. people uh, who uh, who saw therapists and. Uh, Every single one of the guys who did see a therapist, when I said, uh, what do you recommend somebody come, who, who is struggling do? And they say, absolutely, get professional help. Get help from somebody who has dealt with PTSD. Yeah. Uh, and talk to your buddies about it. And, yes, and some of these guys said, you know, sometimes I would say, do you really want me to put that in the book? And they'd say, yes. Um, you know, I've learned that talking about this, he said, talking to my family, talking to my fellow Marines, talking to the therapist, and even talking to you, Chip, helps me. Every time I talk about this, I feel the pressure release a little bit more. And are the families getting professional help as well? Some of them did. One of the the wives was very emphatic about that. I said, is there anything you'd do differently? She said, yeah. I mean, I spent years trying to get my husband to go get help. I should have been getting help myself. Mm -hmm. Uh, That should have been the first step. And then I would have been able to tell him with my experience that it helps. One of the, uh, one of my favorite stories in the book is the guy who absolutely refused to do anything and one of his best friends fellow marine said you are you are full out you are full on ptsd and you need to deal with this you need to go talk to this woman who i've been talking to this therapist and he said i ain't seeing no fucking therapist you go to hell and so the guy said we can deal with this two ways number one you're going to decide to go on your own number two we're going to fight it out right now and i'm going to drag you by the hair not by the hair he didn't have any hair but he had a buzz cut but i'm going to drag you to see her and the guy and this marine wonderful guy said um this whole story is in the book said you know if my best friend is telling me this, and he really cares about me. Maybe I'd just give it a try. So he goes to see this woman, and she's a you know middle-aged kind of petite woman. And he looks at her, and he said, "I was in Cro-Magnon mode at the moment." And I looked at her, and I said, "What the fuck are you gonna tell me about combat?" And she very calmly re- responded, "I'm not gonna tell you anything about combat. 
I'm going to tell you about how combat changed your brain. And he said she helped him 100%. Yeah. So it's this is not this is not a sign of weakness. This is a sign of the brain. It's the same thing that happens to the brain of people who are raped or abused as children or who are Holocaust survivors. Um, the, the, the three categories that one of the, one of the uh, psychiatrists I refer to in here, he's a, one of the best-known people in the field, said the three categories of things that are almost always traumatic enough to cause later stress are Holocaust survivors or people who survive something like that, uh, rape or child, you know, really horrible child abuse, and frontline combat. And th- this is not a sign of weakness. This is a sign of how your it's brain. It's physiological. It's physiological. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it's chemical. Yeah. Yep. It's all exactly. Um, well, I guess on that note, we talked a little bit about um, the potential title of Mister Mukugo's Goes to War. Yes. Why? Why battle scars? Why did you guys land on battle? Well, scars? battle scars. I don't know. I, I'm not sure where it came from. Here's a silly story. Um, I have two pit bulls. I had three pit bulls at the time. One of my pit bulls is a rescue from Puerto Rico. I, I have two that are from. Do Puerto you really? Rico. Yeah, yeah. Well, he had scars all over him when we got him, and. And he's a wonderful dog, and he, for the first year he was fantastic. And when we, whenever we took him to daycare, all the guys in the back room, the big burly guys who took care of the dogs back there, especially the pit bulls, um, called him Battle Scars because he had all these oh, scars yeah, yeah, all over yeah, yeah. him. And they used it jokingly, and then one day at daycare, he got in a fight and did $1,300 worth of damage oh. to, oh, a, to a much bigger coon hound in about 10 seconds. And uh, they said, you're not welcome here anymore. Sorry, we love Buster. We love <laughs> um, Buster was the dog before him. We love Rico. <laughs> Either yours named Rico. You're, no, no, it's uh, <laughs> Black and I. Yeah, <laughs> but anyways, uh, and so it, now we can't let him near any other dogs. But anyway, that might be, it might be the battle scars from that, from Rico being named battle scars. Because I often called him battle scars. And I think that somehow or other that f- expression found it into my into my head but it's it i think it's i discovered there are other books titled battle scars that have been written over the years about about war but i stuck with it anyway because it's just so perfect it's very it's, appropriate it's for it's this. every so many of these guys had almost you know certainly a sizable majority had battle scars of one sort or another physical or mental psychological and uh, and i love you know, personally i'm a big fan of the cover this was a photograph taken by uh, a Baltimore Sun photographer, and uh, oh my gosh, I've got to remember his name. But anyway, John, uh, hold on, I cannot not have his name in here, but I'll think about it. But anyway, the the photo on the front of the book is five Marines, or it might be six. It's hard to tell if there's a sixth one on the other side carrying a guy on a stretcher off the battlefield uh, after the biggest battle we had while I was there. It went on for seven hours, and his name is Mike Meyer. And he was shot eight times and survived. For, fortunately, the first two hit him right in this sappy plate. So it's uh, okay. I'm gonna. I'm, well, I think it's. While um, you do that, I'm gonna. Yeah, I think the title is extremely apropos, um, and I'm glad that you stuck with it because as we've been talking, the idea of a scar 
John hey. Makeley. John Makeley is the photographer, and he was a little upset that they didn't, my publisher didn't put his name uh, after each. They just put Baltimore Sun rather yeah, than John yeah. Makeley, and I always, so I had to mention his name here. So. Oh, glad, glad you did. But yeah, so the idea of scarring in so many ways has these negative connotations. Yeah. But when you think about what a scar is, a scar is where the wound has healed. That's right. right. It's a very good point. And like you said, it's you. You are now changed. Yeah. You mean, but you're not changed for the worse or for the better. That's you right. were just healed, you're just, and now you're different. Yeah. That's right. But that area is now different. But and those who experience post-traumatic of, growth are right. clearly better. I mean, they are better than they ever were. Yeah, whether More, it's mental or physical. That's right. It, that, it's that old changed. thing when you break a bone and it heals. It's stronger than stronger it was than before. before. Exactly. exactly. So, yeah. yeah, scars are not bad. Yeah, that's good. That's yeah. really good. Well, Chip, this has been so great. This, and I've really I, I really appreciate this. you having written the book, and I appreciate your approach to the book because there's so much about it, um, especially when it comes to journalism, that is so self-gratifying. Um, and I think it's just the nature of where we are with social media and influencers, yeah. and yeah. Uh, you know, just the the idea of even celebrity, even for uh, that that monica, you know, that monica yeah. of time that you could feel that it, it becomes very self-serving. So for you to really be putting this out there in a way that you've taken, allowed yourself to take the back seat and let the Marines yeah. be the, it's, the, I th I, as I say in here, it's a tribute. This is a tribute mm -hmm. to the Marines and it's uh, to my battalion, to all Marines. And for that matter, everybody who voluntarily puts on the uniform, it's uh, a tribute to, to everyone. Well, so, and for our listeners who want to read the book, first of all, they'll be able to read an excerpt Chip of the from book. Leatherneck Magazine. In the upcoming, yeah. uh, in the June issue. That's right, the of June issue of Leatherneck, which um, I picked up in the visitor center, Leatherneck Magazine of the Marines. Yeah. It's a fantastic magazine. Well, nice work. Thank you work. very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> Um, but also, where can where can our listeners? You can either find get it, Casemate Publishers. It's C A S E M A T E, Casemate Publishers, or you can get it on Amazon. Uh, whatever's whatever is easier. I think Casemate and I might make a few more pennies when they when it's bought on the Casemate website because Amazon doesn't get their cut. But if you want to buy it on Amazon. Please do. <laughs> and don't forget to buy it for every member of your family. So, no, just kidding. That's, That's right. right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I mean, no better time to get jumped started on next year's holiday Well, I was very lucky right you know, because it came out not long before Christmas, and I had quite a few people who bought, who read awesome. it and then said, oh, nice Christmas present. Yeah, so. totally. Awesome. Um, well, Chip, again, thank you so much it for making my pleasure. the trip down here. Thank you for joining us. That's so great. Really my pleasure. Happy to have you here. Yeah, and, uh, I'll be here next week to talk to 200 Marines. That's and, right. So that's you, right. Uh, the 21st. The said. 21st. That's so right. So you be at uh, Marine Corps Base Quantico right. for those folks for who a are book in signing. Yeah. And yeah, come on down, get a book signed, say hi to Chip, and thank you for <laughs> for doing this. Where can people get more information about if they want to attend that book signing? I. That's a darn good question. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll find it out. We'll put it in the yeah. show. Yeah. Yeah. We'll yeah. Show yeah. When, we, uh, when we release this, but Chip, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great Thank you. Day. Bye. This episode is brought to you by Leatherneck Magazine. Scuttlebutt listeners, attend. Huh! It's time for Leatherneck Magazine's annual writing contest, and we want to know what you think makes a good leader. The history of the Corps is filled with legendary examples of outstanding leaders, and today's Marines maintain that tradition of excellence. Drawing from our storied history, or from your own experience, describe the single most important thing you've learned about leading Marines, or describe an outstanding Marine Corps leader and what makes them successful. Submit your story by March 31st, and you could win up to $1,000 in prize money. 
Your story may also be featured in a future issue of Leatherneck. Visit www.mca-marines.org for more details or to submit your entry form. Contest is open to all authors. Good luck and Semper Fi, Mac. Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am William Truding, but you've also heard the voices or contributions of Vic Rubel, USMC retired, Nancy Lichman, or Ty Frazier. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the official stance of the Marine Corps, DOD, or Marine Corps Association.